0: Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. We are the co-founders
1: and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens.
0: Our guest today is John Duffy, parenting expert and author of Parenting the New Teen in the Age of Anxiety. Of course, a super relevant topic, especially now. We did record this interview before the outbreak of COVID-19. How little did we know that it would be so relevant today? So, Steph, I'm going to tee you up for a story you told me about this morning. Oh, boy. You know, talking about anxiety, we have moved from going into a studio to recording from our homes. And the podcast company Evergreen sent us a really lovely Yeti microphone. And to date, we have had a few sessions of trying to figure this out. Now, I will say that um, I'm not my mother-in-law or my mother when it comes to technology, but I'm guessing the people at Evergreen think I am. So the instructions today were speak into the side of the, of the <laughs> mic, not the front of it. Now, I, I just don't know what that means. I need a visual. I, don't, I keep turning it. I keep looking at it. It's wrong every time. I I don't know what that is. So what I thought, when I thought, what should we talk about? I thought, well, this would be a nice lead-in to a conversation between Stephanie's son and I think her either her mother or mother-in-law. (laughs) Mother-in-law.
1: So (laughs) the other day, so our our son is, he's pretty tech savvy. And he was on a call with my mother-in-law. I was working in the kitchen. He was here in the dining room. (laughs) And he was, he started off pretty calm. And he was going through, I think she, they were trying to put a new SIM card in, I think my father-in-law's phone. I think that was the task. And Ethan's voice just kept getting louder and louder and louder. And I'm sitting in the kitchen and I'm laughing because he's really trying hard to be patient. He really is. And and I, I'm thinking, oh my God, I would totally lose it. But I I set my phone to record. From the kitchen because I knew it was going to just be gold at some point. Trying to figure out what to do with it, so I have about twelve or fourteen seconds. It's funny if I would have thought about it, I could have played it on here. Twelve or fourteen seconds of him. I'm using air quotes teaching my mother in law how to put the (laughs) sim card in. I'll just leave it at that. But later I have to tell you, Sue. This didn't come up today. He was retelling the story to my husband, sitting. We were sitting around at night, and um, Ethan looked at me. He goes. Did you because he was trying to tell Todd, oh my God, and then I do this, and I do that. And he looked at me, he's like, Mom, did you happen to hear any of that? And right (laughs) on that cue, I played it back for him and we all had a good laugh.
0: Okay, but the piece the piece that I that made me die was that each time he tried to explain it, his voice got a little (laughs) louder and and like I don't know what the Take out the word little, Sue,
1: when you said a little louder, and then you'll be accurate.
0: Yeah, but the thing is, like that same tone of voice is like You know when someone can't hear you? Like right now, my husband has some kind of ear infection. I don't know what it is, (laughs) ear clog, whatever.
1: Does he have COVID ear?
0: I don't. I, no, well, I'm I mean, I have COVID brain, but I don't think he has COVID ear. But he literally can't, He he's inaudible when he speaks because he can't tell what his volume is. And he also can't hear anything you say. But when you say it louder, he says, Stop yelling at me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what happens when, like, a younger person tries to explain something to an older person. You hear the it's not that the person can't hear them, but oh my it God. also it's the same thing happens when you can't understand that, like, the impatience is revealed in somehow oh. a higher um, <laughs> decibel level. Anyway, so that's how, that's how our segment started today. John Duffy's going to talk about anxiety. That's his expertise and the book he just wrote about. And I think there probably is nobody right now that, that doesn't want a little bit of help around anxiety. Like, if I think about it, isn't everybody anxious right now?
1: Oh my god. Yeah. Right?
0: Like oh we I god. mean, so I I can tell you that I live my day feeling like a little bit in control of my life. Eh, you know, that's probably an exaggeration. But the time I know most poignantly that I am not okay is when I put my head on the pillow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. So that's so when true. I'm
0: like my heart is racing. I'm like I'm so tired. I how do I calm myself down? And you know, I'm trying all those things people tell you, but I'm it, it, yeah. The breathing stuff. I don't know if the breathing stuff works great for me when I'm calm. You breathe in like you're smelling flowers. I need the I need the next step, like the, the metaphor. And then you hold it for a bit and then you release it as if you're blowing out candles. That's correct. Okay, so I didn't know that had a name for it, but yeah, and I think I, it's called and I square
1: st- breathing. I think still
0: can't figure out why it's called square breathing, but yeah, it feels like triangle. <laughs> but it and it also I- feels like talking
1: into my mic from the side. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the other thing, though. Yeah, I so I love the sound of the ocean. Uh, there is nothing more beautiful. Yeah, exactly. I might fall asleep. Don't do that because this is usually my sleepy time. Like getting near one o'clock, I feel because like, I've been up so many times. It's like the you know fourth part of the day. But I have been putting on my iPad um, just ocean waves. Does and it help? Totally.
0: Oh, okay. I'm going to try it.
1: Yeah. Tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, and there's lots of apps and stuff for it, but I just go right onto YouTube and grab something and, oh, it's really nice. You love the ocean, right?
0: Um, I do love the ocean. Yeah, I, that's I, I moved out to Cleveland from living on the Long Island Sound. And I don't know why I'm willing to admit this, but I, I grew up on the Long Island Sound, so I didn't know that there were places in the world where you could live where there wasn't a beach. Like that was just, you know how people say, oh, yeah, did same, you know, same. you know, mm-hmm. people say, did you know you didn't have enough money? And, and kids are like, well, no, I, why would I know that I had yeah. what I needed? Right. Like, or, so I had a beach and we went to the beach and we went sailing, we went in the ocean. So we moved to Cleveland. I was like, where's the beach? And then everyone yeah. tells you to go to the lake as if that is comparable to the yeah. beach. It's not, right, Steph? It's not, but you know what I will say?
1: It's really, I. it's kind of funny. I think I'm a little bit of a convert toward the lake now. Wow. Yeah, I think I appreciate the lake life, you know, I'm ah. go, going up to Canada and stuff. So I, I think I don't necessarily miss that salty taste in my mouth anymore. But what, you know what's funny? That I always think my kids' Midwest is showing when we're on the East Coast, visiting my sister in Boston, and they live right near the beach. And when they go in the water and they're like, <laughs> spitting it out, because I'm like, what are they doing? Because that's how we knew we were by the water was coming home with that taste in our mouths, right? Um, so
0: it's just kind yeah, of funny. so I don't think I guess I don't take it as far as going in the water, but I feel like sitting mm. at the at the ocean beach feels different than sitting at the lake.
1: Well, beach. yeah, that's probably I, I would agree with that. But okay, you have to try the ocean ways, and you have to do it more than one night. Give it like three nights and see. Okay, what you Mom, think. <laughs> exactly.
0: All right, so what do you think is like the most telling sign of your anxiety?
1: Oh, I know it a thousand percent. So I don't know it when I'm just sitting here. I know it when I go on a Zoom call or if like when we just put our um, videos on and my shoulders are about half an inch under my ear. Like, the physicality, where I, because I carry my stress in my shoulders,
0: uh, so you can tell that your body. I look is, and I'm like,
1: oh my god, and I will push oh, my shoulders uh, down.
0: Yeah, so Zoom calls gives you a, a mirror image of yourself, Correct. so you get to see it. I get it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I once told somebody that I read the end of books, which I actually know a lot of people who I do, do that. too. Sue. Okay, and the response yeah. was, "You totally have anxiety." So I was like, wait, what, what does that mean? And so she said, people who have anxiety can't sit with discomfort and they have to know the end of the story in order to go back and enjoy it. And so I started doing this study and I happened to be sitting with a family and I was talking to the mom and she was telling me about her son's anxiety that he's in treatment for, and how debilitating it is and how difficult it is on the whole family. And simultaneously, he is across the table telling someone that he reads the end of books. And I was like, oh my God is that really a thing? So I I think it's interesting because like my husband who does not live with a ton of anxiety does not need to read the end of a book. He doesn't need, like I, sometimes I need to know the end of the movie before I watch it because it's too scary for me to live through the whole process of it.
1: So did you take that study any further besides this? I have,
0: I have. It's consistent. Yeah. I mean, so interesting. Yeah. At least my informal study will say that people who read the end of the book have anxiety.
1: Yeah, I, can't, I, I cannot argue with that one, at least my personal. I'm a, I'm a test subject one, but i um,
0: Yeah, well, maybe we could do a that. study. Maybe we could do a formal study. It'll be the Your Teen Study. We'll do it on Instagram, <laughs> following all the protocols, and we'll get back to you on it next time. Exactly. Okay, so up next is our conversation with John Duffy, parenting expert and author of Parenting the New Teen in the Age of Anxiety. You don't want to miss it. I have sent five kids to college. It's insane, five kids to college, 29 years of parenting, and now my baby two weeks ago left for college. It is a tad devastating, a huge adjustment, but Steph, you've still got one at home, so that means you're about to enter into the college process all over again for the last time. That is correct,
1: and I've been thinking about how different it's going to be with a daughter, and it presents other exciting opportunities. And one thing I've been thinking about is she is at an all-girls high school and I've seen the benefit of that. And our sponsor, Agnes Scott College, is an all-women's college. And I can see what a game changer it is for so many students. What I love about them is that you don't have to choose between an academic concentration or a liberal arts degree. At Agnes Scott College, you get to do both and customize
0: your experience all of which include leadership development in a global society. So check out their Summit program at summit.agnesscottcollege.com to learn more. Our guest today, Dr. John Duffy, is a highly sought-after clinical psychologist, best-selling author, certified life coach, and parenting expert, His book, Parenting the New Teen in the Age of Anxiety, is an essential guide that addresses the sometimes dark inner workings of the changing teenage brain in the Internet age. So, John, I was reading up on some of your stuff, and I was watching some of your videos, and I happened upon a segment of The Steve Harvey Show, and I just thought thought I'd start with this, Placenta Made into Jewelry. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes. Um, but, but not not necessarily my sole area of expertise. But that. <laughs> that, that <laughs> so what I that thought when I was up. watching it and
0: everyone should take a peek at it, because it's amazing. You really were cracking up and then you had to be the professional and you did yes. it.
2: Yes. It took a little practice with Steve Harvey on set. That was a tricky one for sure that I did not see coming.
0: Okay. So we're going to move into your real area of expertise, which is parenting teenagers. So we're excited to hear all your great advice.
1: So before we launch into the age of anxiety, can you give us the good news about teens?
2: Yeah. So teens now are really striking people. So I've been doing, I've been a therapist for about 25 years. And what I find is different about teens today is they're, they're very well informed and where typically I think the rap on teens is they're very egocentric and they're surly and there's they, they've got this angst that they carry. I think all that it has some elements of truth to it. But at the core teens today, because they know so much and are exposed to so much, have worldview and they're kind and they're thoughtful. And the idea of suffering anywhere in the world really, really gnaws at them. And they want to have some impact on that. And they're not much for bullying, even though there's still some bullying going on. And they're not much for drunk driving or for not being inclusive in some way. So Even the most difficult kids I work with who are struggling the most are really like kind, thoughtful, remarkable people. Rarely anymore do I ever work with a teen where I think like, hmm, you know, this is really a, a, a difficult human being. I think there are human beings that are experiencing difficulties that manifest in ways that can be challenging for mom and dad. But by and large, these are really, really good people who have a worldview that I don't remember having when I was a kid, and I don't think many of us did. That is
1: lovely. So tell us why you wrote the
2: book. So about eight or nine years ago, I wrote a book that I thought was all I had to say to parents (laughs) um, about the way we can parent teens, if we could take our own fear, our own judgment, and our own ego, which is a lot, and put those off to the side part of the time and connect with our kids and really work the emotional bank account with them, then the whole teen thing goes way more smoothly than it would otherwise. And your child is going to listen to your words, they're going to heed your words more frequently, and your connection with them is going to remain strong. And I still stand by that. I still think that's the case. What I learned about a year and a half ago I actually, was. In, if I can tell a brief story, I was in a session with a, a father and son, and uh, dad's trying to align with his son. And he says, son, you know what? I understand what it was like. I was a teenager once, too. I remember what 16 was like, so I get it. And his son said very respectfully, no, dad, you don't. You couldn't possibly. You were never a teenager. Not like this. And he went on to explain, you know, like how social media plays this impact on self-esteem and self-worth and the pressure from, you know, academic areas and social areas and video games and all this stuff that he deals with on a daily basis. And so I wrote a little blog piece that I published on the Huffington Post and my wife and I sat down and talked about it a little bit and we thought, you know what, there's more to say about this because this is a whole new age where kids are very anxious and we're all kind of anxious during this information age and teens are different now than they used to be. The onset of what I consider to be adolescence used to be very clean, 13 to 19, you know. Um, Now, I think there are elements of adolescence in our 10-year-olds and still elements of adolescence lingering in our 23-year-olds. So I think we have to kind of reconfigure how we think about and look at the nature of parenting from this kind of wider range of ages
0: so we're tra- we talk about this all the time we're trying really desperately to figure out what are the tools and tips we can give to parents that will make a difference in their relationship with their kids. You do this day in and day out. You see parents, you see teenagers, you write books about it. What are the top three concerns that you have about today's kids? And can you offer up any suggestions on what parents can do differently to help their kids?
2: The top three concerns. The first one is I am concerned about our kids' emotional well-being. Overall, I find my referral base has increased Enormously, and it's not just me. I talk to other therapists in the area, other therapists I know across the country, and you've probably run across this as well, where everybody's full, every everybody is busy and full, and there just isn't enough help for the teens who need it. So their emotional well being is one thing. I worry that they are being presented with way too much data and information and material at way too young an age. And I do worry, and this is a little bit different than the first two, about this crisis in terms of uh, drug use, specifically vaping and juuling, and how kids have been sold this bill of goods that this is relatively innocuous, and they don't have to worry about this. This is much safer than smoking cigarettes or smoking marijuana in different forms. And so I think they're really, they've been really poorly informed for profit, I think, by some companies. I won't get too deep into that. And I think your back end of the question was effectively, you know, what can we do about all this? Yes?
0: Absolutely. I mean, we were hearing about all three of those things all the time. Sure. Can parents play a, a role in reducing all three of those things?
2: Absolutely. And we have to. Uh, and I, the primary way to do that, it's so different than what we think it is, because I witness in in kind of a painful way in my office on nearly a daily basis that mom and dad, when they finally have their son or daughter with a professional in the room, so they know everyone's going to behave with some different degree of decorum than they might at home. We decide like, okay, now we can get our lecture in. Now we can tell them, you know, all the, the ethos of the family and what's so important about, you know, not using drugs and being careful about sex and, I usually stop those lectures because our kids know them. Our kids kind of know where we stand on a lot of things. So I think we need to listen way, way more than we talk because I think we're now confronted with the first generation of teens and tweens who know more about their lives than their parents do. And so I think we have to learn from them and listen to them with a third ear. Like, you know, like what, what is your life like? Because I can't say I fully understand it. Um, I I used to start my talks by pulling Snapchat up on my phone and asking a parent, mom or dad to come up onto the stage with me and just explain how it works. And it was always, as you might guess, really funny because (laughs) no parent knows how it works. Um, And then if you bring a 14-year-old up, they could walk you through how it works, how to hide it from your parents, how to, you know, like they, they know the ins and outs of the whole thing. So we have a lot to learn from our kids. The other, the other thing I think is really important that parents can do for our kids that we forget as our kids get older, is, and this is going to sound a little pie in the sky, so please bear with me, is to brighten up and lighten up for them. So our kids ha- experience kind of this noise, whether it's on their phone or social noise or academic noise, all day long. And so we have this opportunity to serve as sanctuary for them to some extent and light up for them when they walk in the door on the worst day, when we're most frustrated with them, instead of lecturing them, instead of saying, you know, I looked at the portal and I'd like to know why you didn't do your math assignments. That all, that's all important. But most important is to let them know, hey, I'm glad to see you. And at the foundation, at the core of things, you and I are good. I've got your back and we're a team and I'm your ally. I am not your enemy. You don't have to work around me. You can talk to me and I'm your ally. And I that's think- in, we... That's
0: in in showing or in words?
2: Uh, both, mostly in showing. <laughs> mostly in showing because pick, kids can pick up on the vibe that you present to them. And so they'll know if you're glad to see them or not. And they will tell me, Oftentimes, and, um, and, and it's a little insider knowledge, kids will tell me, I could, I could fel- remember the day and I could feel it when the lights went out for my mom or my dad. I remember when they were um, all of a sudden kind of policing me as opposed to working with me. I remember when they didn't, when they weren't excited to see me. And now I feel like I'm a burden to them in a lot of ways. And I see them as a limit to my freedom and people to work around instead of working with. So I think, well, a lot more of it has to do with the vibe. I think if you find that you're disconnected with your child, the words are important. It's important to say, hey, I want to reset this. You know, I, I want us to work together as, you know, allies with each other. But if you feel like things are going pretty well, then I think you can just present a vibe, you know, where it's just a smile and a little goodwill. And hanging out with them and building the emotional bank account up on a daily basis, and then when an, you, can you yeah, get,
0: can you give an example of a kid coming in and telling you that their parent did something right just just for fun?
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I, I worked with with a, a young man recently. He's an anxious guy. I'm going to be cryptic here to protect a little confidentiality. But he's also very involved, very type A. So he's a multi-sport athlete. He's in AP classes and honors classes. The other day, he had a lot to do. So he had um, a paper due and a bunch of homework to do. And he had practice, so it was late. And his mom said, hey, is this a chocolate chip cookie night? And he's like, yo, mom, yeah, please, let's do some chocolate chip cookies. And she made cookies for him and then sat with him. And she would like kind of read her paper and did some of her work. And her vibe was, you know, I can't do this for you, but I can I can walk this walk with you. I can kind of be along for the ride. And if there's anything you need you need that I can ease for you, let me know. If you want me to read a paper, if you want me to walk through something with you, if you need chocolate chip cookies, I'm I've got your back. That is and, a big you know,
0: smile it, moment. Mm-hmm.
2: Right? And yep. and, he, and he was kind of really, that really carried him through a difficult night. And there's kind of this in-joke between them where he can kind of, in any given night, say, Mom, I think it's a cookie night. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to need that tonight. I'm going to need your help here. You know, and she's like on it, you know, right away. And then there's like these breaks with in-jokes and things like that. So that's a great way to connect where you don't have to say a lot. And a lot gets done. You know, it moves the ball forward in terms of your connection and in terms of him not being overwhelmed. That's lovely.
1: So let's talk. You've touched on this a couple of times. You said something about the information age and too much data. And we know, you know, it's coming at our kids 24-7. Yes. Tell us about the effect on our teens and tell us what we can do about that as their parents.
2: Yeah. I think we can limit the time our kids spend on their devices. I think it's important to do that. I encourage my client families, you know, to never have a screen in a bedroom if they can if they can do that. And and I know that's a lot to ask and runs counter to the way a lot of our households work, but when I can get a family to do that, the anxiety level comes way down and it's just undeniable. Everybody sleeps better, everyone communicates better, things work way more smoothly. That said, I don't think there's a way now to protect our kids from what's going on in the world. So I think they're going to have access to information, whether they're carrying it around in their pocket or whether the child next to them is carrying it around in his or her pocket. It's there. And so they're going to know an awful lot that my 24-year-old, for example, might not have known when he was 12. There were We, we could... We could control the narrative a little bit back then, whereas now I think parents kind of have to follow the narrative. So there has to be a lot of discussion about like, you know, what's going on, the talks that you would normally have had when your child was 12 or 13 or 14 about sex or whatever is going on in the headlines um, or drug overdoses, the opioid crisis, you know, sexual assault or all sorts of things that are going on in the world. To think our 10-year-olds are not exposed to any of this or our 12-year-olds is folly. And so I think it's important, and I think this is a hard thing to ask parents to do, to open up dialogues and at the very least make ourselves available to talk to our kids about anything. And that includes the way they feel about themselves. You probably notice this and with a lot of the authors and, and all the experts that you work with. You probably hear that at younger and younger ages, kids have this element of self-awareness. And part of that self-awareness is a negative feeling about the self, this like low self-esteem, I don't think I'm good enough feeling that might be fleeting in some kids and might rest in some other kids. But we need to be prepared to hear that as well and to kind of hold that for our children. And that's, that I think is really hard to do as a parent.
0: I also find personally that I've retreated from the news occasionally when I find I'm, I'm depressed and overwhelmed by it and I need to take a break. So do you think that it's healthy for us to bring our kids to, into that story? Like we want you to be activists and to know what's going on in the world, but sometimes we need to step away from it.
2: Absolutely. I like it when families pick a day of the week uh, on the weekend and just say, you know, like all the phones are off. Uh, We're going to take Sunday and we're just going to go and hang out together and we're going to go out, you know, hiking and we're going to do something active and we're going to get off the grid for a while because way too many kids that I work with live very sedentary lives and they're always on the grid. And that's just depressing. You know, that, that just doesn't feel very good. So I think we have to model that for our kids and that's difficult, right? That means we need to put our phones down and our iPads and our computers and step away from the news. Um, and and I think that, you know, if we show them that that makes us feel better. It'll be hard for them to fall in line, but not hard all day. You know, like kids, once they, once they get into whatever the other activity is, they usually like enjoy it. You know, like I, I think that the default is a screen, but it's not necessarily what kids want. And to the extent that we can put those things in the margins of their lives and keep a lot of activity in the middle of the bell curve, I think they're way, way better off.
0: I think we all are. So thank you for yep. that. Um, yes. So there's so much discussion about resilience and grit and all of the things that our kids need to become healthy adults and able to navigate life. But yeah. I think you've said that our kids have enough resilience. <laughs> and I was yes. curious, what do, you, what do you mean by that?
2: Yeah. So when you track what life is like in a given day for our kids today, in any given day, they have so much on their plate, and I think that making it through the day successfully, making it through the classes, making navigating their social lives over the course of the day. When you tack on that, there's a social media element, and there, there's other identities that they're kind of keeping track of. Identity I have with my teachers, and with myself, and with my people online, and with my parents, and all these elements that they have to navigate and all this new information that they had they're privy to along with everything we went through you know all the normal trials and tribulations of adolescence i think it's pretty mighty work to go from 7am to 4 and you know or to 6 you know whatever if you have a practice after school and successfully navigate all that i think that's really trickier now than it ever has been So, you know, oftentimes if I'm speaking, a parent will ask me like, you know, when will our kids ever develop any grit or resilience? And my answer is typically, oh, they're doing that. Like they're they're doing that in, in spades. They're doing that beautifully. We're just not aware of the extent to which they're doing it. You know what I mean? I think they're kind of carrying an emotional load through the day virtually every day you know because i think there's this kind of heightened level of anxiety i don't need i don't think we need to add anything to the backpack
1: i think that is an excellent segue to our next question which is how can we simplify or can we simplify life for our kids you touched on the digital detox or the day of the week where you go out hiking yeah. but what what
2: else yeah so here here's this is going to seem contrarian but one way to simplify our kids' lives is to get them involved in something. I remember not that long ago that, you know, like I I was arguing in front of people for like free range play, lots of open time during the day. But now I think the default falls to things we would rather our kids not be involved in that are sedentary. And I know that when I, when I see kids up on a stage, so I went, I recently there, there's a um, beautiful school here that I spoke at called the Chicago Academy for the Arts Every kid in the school is an artist, and they had this showcase. And the joy for me was partly like, okay, these kids are do- creating beautiful art. They're dancing, they're acting, they're showing us our, their visual art. But part of the joy was there wasn't a phone in sight, and these kids were just celebrating each other's, you know, beautiful artistry and their work. And that felt simpler than, and far less complicated than being in the basement. You know, playing Fortnite and managing four different screens. You know, I think that kind of eases their minds and gives them sanctuary from some of the noise. You know, and I think that's what that's part of the charge of parents now. And it doesn't have to be a stage or an art room, it can be a pool or a track or a field or a debate room. But I think the more engaged and involved our kids are in something other than the noise, the better off they are. And I find that almost all the time. You know, when I work with an athlete who is in season, he or she gets better grades, even though they're far busier than they normally are. They seem better regulated emotionally, even though they're busier. When they're out of season, they're a little out of sorts, you know, then they tend toward, you know, like, "Ah, I'm going to watch another YouTube video and I need more time just to hang out, and there's this kind of disengagement that I think is a little complicating for them and draws up some negative emotion. So I think maybe spending some time building some skills that make them feel good about themselves and connect to other kids, that's oddly simplifying, I think, for kids.
0: You also use the word sanctuary, and you've used it in uh, many times when you talk about creating a sanctuary at home, which is such a beautiful image. And what I want to do is talk about in the world of creating a sanctuary at home for my kids, walking in the door from school was probably the least effective I was in that space because I was desperate for information, like come in the house and answer my next 30 questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And so uh, can you talk about what do parents typically do when their kids come home from school? Like, was I the typical mom? And yeah. then, and then in, in the best case scenario, what would you encourage us to do?
2: Yeah, I think most of us want information. We we know that teenagers can be super stingy with information <laughs> and tell us. A precious little, I work with one mom, and she's so funny. She says, my kids will tell me nothing when I have time to hear everything. And then when I want to go to sleep, that's when they will sit down. And all of a sudden, like the floodgates open, and they want to tell me their life story. Mm. <laughs> so. In a way, we almost have to adapt to the inconveniences of parenting a teenager mm-hmm. because they rarely work on time, you know? I think by and large, you were, I think a lot of us do exactly what you, what you do, you know, or what you did is like, you know, kind of like want information, you know? We want to know what your life is like. And the tricky part is to work on their timetable a little bit more to recognize like, okay, you might need a little bit of downtime here before we dive into a discussion, before you jump right into homework. I think it's important to recognize as parents that the day has been long for them and it takes a toll on them. And so a little bit of sanctuary, a little bit of space before we ask the questions actually increases our balance in the bank account with them a little bit, but also just gives them the ability to kind of regulate, you know? And I think that's like one of the most important skills that we can allow for our kids now is that ability to just hold a calm and steady state and manage anxiety, which is a term I use a little bit loosely because I don't necessarily mean like panic attacks and OCD and all the diagnosable stuff. I mean, just kind of like the wired up, amped up world our kids live in. And if we provide enough sanctuary where they can kind of breathe for a little while when they get home from school, and if that means like watching some you know ridiculous cartoon or cat videos on YouTube or something that might really bug us before we ask questions, before we push for homework to get done, I think we're, al- we're allowing them a little space to find sanctuary and also providing a little template for the future because they're going to have to be the regulators in the not too distant future, right? That that those college years or those working years come pretty quickly and we want to teach good methods and habits for them as well.
0: I think that's the hardest thing is like that idea of patience because (laughs) I want to really like kind of have a glimpse into their heart and brain and all the things that I've been missing for the hours they were at school. And that's the last thing they want to share with me when they walk in after a long day.
2: Oh, for sure. I'm yeah.
0: going to give you a scenario that I, I spoke with a mom yesterday, and her story pained me. And so I thought, well, I'm going to be on the phone with John Duffy. I'll ask him if he has any advice <laughs> for her. She's a single mom, and she has an eighth-grade daughter who is being so mean to her and defiant. Mm-hmm. And you feel this woman's pain. She is at a complete loss for how to handle this. So, what do you say to her and, and all the zillions of other moms feeling the same
2: way? Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I, I especially feel for her at being a single mom. And I think for a lot of moms and, and a few dads, there's that idea of feeling like you're the single parent, even if you've got another parent living in the home because they're otherwise occupied or they're off at some job somewhere or something like that. So, I think it's like extra work when you're a lot of extra work, when you're the single mom and you're bearing the brunt of that kind of like negative you know, attitude. And I think it's okay. I think a couple of things are okay here. Uh, one thing is at a moment of calm, I think it's okay to talk to your child, even your eighth grader, who because I think kids are, can be very empathic and let them know like, I don't think it's great to do in the moment, but a little while later to let them know, you know, it does affect me when you talk to me that way, it's really hurtful. So I would love for us to figure out a different way to communicate because that takes a toll on me and I work hard to be respectful and kind to you and I would love for you to do that for me as well. So that's one thing I would suggest it's a little bit of a pie in the sky thing. I get where that's, you know, she might be rolling her eyes when she's listening to me now. <laughs> and I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame her a bit. I think that takes a while to, to get to. In the meantime, I think one way to be able to tolerate some of that attitude is to consider, wow, I wonder what it's like to be in her, in my child's shoes. I wonder, you know, she's bringing all of this to me And I know that some of this isn't mine, you know, at least some of this I know isn't mine. So she must feel some degree of upset, anxiety, depression, something, right? Something socially maybe. And she's bringing that to me. And maybe if I can play therapist a little bit here and help her mine what's really going on underneath all that, maybe then I can be, I can be helpful. You know,
0: that's so I think work. that that is really helpful. And as you just said, like so hard to do. But yeah. I think, you know, it's one of those things you can hear over and over again. And maybe the fourth time you go like, oh, my God, I'm doing it. I I got it. Yep. So thank yeah. you.
2: Yeah. And I think it takes and I think it's before mm-hmm. what one last note is it might take four times, right? It might take <laughs> 10. But if you bear with that, eventually, I think your child will find you. You know what I mean? They're like, we'll finally hear you. So my, I encourage parents in situations like that to be persistent with their messaging.
1: That's excellent. So our last question, which is a question we ask all of our guests is what is the biggest parenting myth?
2: <laughs> the biggest parenting myth for parents of the, the kids I work with, teens and tweens, is this is going to be a difficult time. So, there is this kind of underlying belief that, you know, I just have to hold my breath. I want to get to 18 or 19. My goal is just to get them through these very, very difficult years. And I think if we, when we carry that myth going into the teen years, it's kind of like the law of attraction very much at work because I think we draw that to ourselves and the years become far more difficult than they need to be. And I can tell you from experience that, The breach in the connection between parent and child, if you bring enough emotional intelligence and humor into your relationship with your child, things can run pretty smoothly and that connection can be held pretty solidly all the way through. And these don't have to be awful years at all. You know what I mean? I think these can be years where connections run deeper. But I think in order to do that, you have to kind of change your set of assumptions and step into your child's world and get to know it and accept it instead of kind of rejecting elements of it, you know?
0: And then grow some thick skin.
2: Yeah, you have to do that.
1: (laughs) What's that stuff you can put on blisters that, uh, I forget what it's called, (laughs) new skin or
2: something, right? Right, I think new skin is right. (laughs) Oh, the thick skin is absolutely Mm -hmm. a must. (laughs) Right, right. It's hard.
0: Thank you so much. We really loved having you. I'm glad. It took us a while to get together, but it was well worth the wait.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com.
0: Also, if you want to receive our newsletter, head on over to yourteenmag.com. Your Teen with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Koltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at
1: evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.
0: Hi, This is Kim Thompson, host of Storytime Anytime, a podcast packed with songs, stories, and a whole lot of learning fun. Each episode will explore a new topic like dinosaurs, sharks, space travel, chemistry, horses, reptiles, and so much more. New episodes are out every other week, so check us out. Wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. It's really story time and music at its best,
2: exclusively for kids.